Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. This week's floretry selection is entitled, Ode to Those Who Wage War on Peace. Thinking about events, a lament forms in my heart. For the innocent ones whose lives are cast into ruins beneath boots of glory, that march to visionary commands from leaders gone mad, with the ego song of self-serving delusion. Wondering what goes on in the hidden depths beyond surface shallow, which flow in public space, I try to fathom the undertow set in motion by ones with power and ambition, so that I may try to chart a course for my own heart. Navigating becomes nightmarish when contending with the lies used to bend lines that define life maps which defy one's moral compass, while edicts are pronounced that threaten rendition or charges of sedition if one should disobey. Wondering about those human beings whose bodies lay still beneath rubble or freshly dug earth due to wondrous technology, and whose mortal sin was to breathe air in the wrong place. I also wonder about those who kill in such haste. My soul fills with pain and tears as images of once laughing children, now wrapped in shrouds of silent witness to newly won freedom, haunt my heart's memory while it searches for some defensible theory for murderous rage, but fails. Wondering why leaders feel so free to abuse the lives of others and treat that which is sacred with low purposes of greed, oppression, and corruption. I seek answers amidst dark deeds of misadventure and see evil's presence. Reframing is a tool used by the tacticians of falsehood to paint pictures of truth and beauty, hiding orders, nuanced decay, which seeps into people's day, turning light into night until life becomes entombed in someone's agenda. Wondering, wandering about history, which shows again and again what reasoning knows to be truth concerning the monsters who ruthlessly play games of fame, exploiting mere human beings as lifelike toys for competing whims. Anguished cries of the weak, the disenfranchised, the poor and hungry are heard by models of civility who claim they understand this plight, but duty demands that the rich get richer while the rest are shown the door to noble sacrifice. I wonder about those who label all terror but their own as ignoble 
while devising strategies to inspire a needless fear to better control the cattle who are to be slaughtered on the altar of service to endless lust. Battles were lost as trusts died with the first casualty of war, and innocence disappeared in the mangled, burnt bodies of those who did not transgress against us, yet were deemed suitable for torture, rape, and murder by those with diseased souls. Wondering what to do when faced with such relentless narcissism, I pray for true guidance that blesses me with understanding, strength, courage, and character, so that I might resist in moral ways the darkness which wages war on peace. The following short story is titled Phoenix Rising. From the first moment she laid eyes on the man, she was consumed with love for him. She thought about him day and night. He was in her dreams and fantasies. Through some complex, strange form of association, everywhere she looked she was reminded of him by what she saw. When he was near, she was in ecstasy, and when he was far away, her being was filled with sighs and sobs. She constantly asked the people she met if they had seen him. If they had not, she moved on in search of someone who had, and if the people whom she met had seen the man, she would implore them to give every last detail of their encounters, often asking them to repeat some part of the account which she particularly liked. She only had three problems. First, she already was married to someone else. Secondly, people were beginning to talk and a huge scandal was brewing because her husband was a very influential and jealous individual. Thirdly, the man of her affections did not appear to be in love with her, and even if he were, his spiritual character was such that he would, God willing, resist any temptation that might be thrown in his path by her. In fact, she did try to seduce him in a variety of ways and on a variety of levels, but without success. These failures did not depress her. In fact, quite the opposite, since the more her plans did not work, the more determined she became, and as a result, she was spending all her time, effort, talents, and abilities focused on winning him over, and she enjoyed this, much like a huntress might enjoy a hunt in which Early setbacks only made the final conquest all the sweeter. A time eventually came, however, when her husband was fed up with her antics. More and more the whole situation had become a huge source of embarrassment for him, because now his wife was not even bothering to hide her obsession from public view anymore, as she had done when she first became enamored with and mesmerized by the stranger. His wife and he had become the talk of the town, both in the gossip columns as well as in nearly every party and social occasion being held across the city. He couldn't go anywhere without running into those funny looks which bothered and upset him so much. He knew what lay behind those looks, namely, minds tittering over someone else's misery and difficulty. People heaped ridicule upon him behind his back, 
and then became excessively quiet whenever he happened by their hushed conversations, only to begin chattering again as soon as he walked a respectable distance away, looking at him received from them with amusement, smeared on their lips like some uneaten piece of carrion. The situation was affecting his ability to conduct business and politics effectively. Enough was enough. So he threw his wife into the street, and by means as cruel as they were legally permissible, he cut her off without a dime and made sure that no one in the city would give her employment, and consequently she became homeless and a beggar. Many years passed, and the scandal had largely been forgotten. Occasionally, people in the so-called circles of cultural refinement played Do You Remember? and reminisced about what should have been laid to rest long ago, but was being dug up again as a tonic for some ghoulish hunger, much as a grave robber might go looking for targets of opportunity amidst the shadows of the soul's darkness. And whenever this occurred, the players would recount the whole affair once again. One day, the man who had been the object of the married woman's obsession was on an errand in the city center. As she crossed the street and was waiting for a car to pass by, he looked towards an alleyway that was next to the store where he was headed, and he thought he saw a familiar face. When he got to the far curve, he took a closer look at the person who was sitting on the pavement, and his earlier impression was confirmed. The woman who had fallen madly in love with him so many years ago was sitting with a bowl in her lap, her eyes closed and her lips seemed to be moving. A sign next to her read, Please give alms to the poor. He took out his wallet and put some currency in the receptacle on her lap. Her eyes remained closed. He stood over her, not knowing whether to move on or stay for a while longer, waiting to see if she would open her eyes. He did not wish to embarrass her, but he had lost track of her after her husband threw her out, and often had thought about her with concern, and he would have liked to say hello and see if there was anything he could do for her. She had been a beautiful woman back then. If she had been single, he would have married her in a fraction of a New York second, but since she was not free, all he could do was resist her advances try to avoid her when possible, and feel badly for both her and her husband, since the woman obviously had been struck by a force that transcends all reason. The years and street time weighs more heavily on humans than can be measured even in dog years, had taken an obvious toll on the woman. She was no longer either young or beautiful. Creases lined her face, and gray eddies ran through her hair. He was about to leave when she stirred, shifted her position slightly, and then opened her eyes. She had the look of someone who had been far away without having gone anywhere. She squinted against the sudden glare of light and looked upward. A smile of recognition came across her lips, and a twinkle came into her gaze. She said, How are you? He crouched down to be level with her and put his hand on her shoulder. I'm fine. How are you? She replied, 
I am as you see me, and praise be to God. I am happy despite my worldly circumstances. Feeling empathy for her while up in his heart, he realized he still loved this woman, although he could never have confessed to her back then, without helping an already impossible situation to deteriorate further into chaos and madness. He spoke to her of the love which he used to have and still had for her, and why he had been silent about it all these years. She said nothing, and just looked at him with affection. There was an aura of satisfaction that had gathered about her like morning mist around a field. He said, I heard long ago that your husband divorced you. I've often searched for you, but always without success until now. And since you are an eligible woman, if you wish, I would be very happy if you would become my wife and let me take you away from all this. And as he said this, he moved his hand in a general reference to the immediate physical circumstances surrounding them. She lowered her head and then raised it again and looked into his eyes. She said, Well, I am single, but I am not eligible. Not sure what she meant by her remark, he said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. She closed her eyes and began to talk. Back when I was caught up in my madness concerning you, I did not comprehend what was going on. I didn't realize that the source of my overwhelming love was not you per se, but rather you were a locus of manifestation through which something else shone, and I confused you with that which was shining through you. I realize now I was like a deer caught in the headlights of divinity, and you were merely the car that brought that light towards me. You were the candle, but God was the flame. She opened her eyes, and although her eyes were directed down the street, her vision was somewhere else. As she stared at that which was both near and far, she continued to speak. I no longer have need of an external candle because the flame burns within me now. The light that shone through you has ignited something within me which, God willing, is self-sustaining, and I am happy with the warmth and joy this inner light gives to me. This has been my companion all these many years. That is what has and continues to sustain me. She returned her gaze to him. You are very loving and sweet to offer your hand in marriage. Indeed, your very loving and kind nature was the wax that formed the candle that all those many years ago permitted the divine light to shine through and melt my heart. But I am fine. Go back to your life in peace, now secure in the knowledge that the woman you worried about all these many years has been and is happy and content with her life's destiny. She looked at him for a few more seconds and then closed her eyes. Her lips began to move again in a silent hymn. He stood, looked down at her with a sense of awe and admiration, and then turned and walked away. But the story does not end here, for always that which unfolds is continuously unfolding. Several more years pass. The human candle had just come out of a store and was thinking about whether he should walk home or hail a cab. The weather had been unsettled for most of the day. Rain seemed to be hiding in the air, ready to spill down. 
he felt a tug on his arm, turned round, and once more was looking into the face of the same beggar woman. Without any preliminary chit-chat, she said, If the offer of marriage still stands, I accept. The man laughed. As much out of the unexpectedness of her words as out of his sense of joy with respect to the potential completion of a chain of events that had been set in motion so long ago. He asked, Why the change of heart? She replied, My heart has not changed, but the light within has informed me that if I wish to serve that which makes such light possible, then first I should love humankind. And I can think of no better portion of humanity with which to start than you. Today's musical interlude is called Ice Caps. Thank you. 
Out of the 31,536,000 and odd seconds that make up a year, you have been spending your time with the extremely small subset of seconds spanning 365 and a quarter days, which comprise the Sufi Reverberations podcast. This edition of Meditative Essays is called Autonomy. The struggle to establish control over our lives is a theme which is intimately woven into the fabric of our existence. In one way or another, we all seek to carve out a place in which we can stand and defend ourselves against intrusions into impossible threats to our space, our privacy, our movements, our choices, our time, our possessions, and our identities. From the very earliest days of our developmental odyssey, the story of our growth is influenced greatly by skirmishes and battles concerning the perceived locus of control in our lives. Our relationship with parents, siblings, relatives, playmates, neighbors, religious figures, schoolmates, teachers, adolescent friends, bosses, workmates, clients, romantic liaisons, in-laws, and children frequently revolve around problems of whom gets to set the agenda for how or if the relationship will proceed and under what set of conditions. We tend to define whom we are and aren't according to the character and outcome of all the different kinds of locus of control issues that run through our lives. How serious were they? How intense? Were they protracted? What tactics were used? How important was control in any given instance? Was it an atmosphere of take no prisoners or were there civil negotiations? How long were the periods of relative peace between significant differences of opinion concerning locus of control problems? Were there peaceful alternatives available to hostile encounters? Did the confrontations do lasting damage or were they no big deal? The answer to all of the above questions and many others of a similar nature that might be asked will have a profound impact on us. They will affect our sense of identity, integrity, self-esteem, and ability to function effectively in a variety of social settings. If we are lucky, we come out of all of this with perhaps a few bruises and a couple of scars. However, our basic feelings about ourselves as, in some non-trivial sense, worthwhile human beings is still intact. One might even argue our sense of self has been enhanced by the rigors of, and lessons learned from, that developmental process. Moreover, we have war stories to swap with other people, stories that both link us to as well as differentiate us from other individuals who have gone through their own operational theaters of developmental conflicts. If we are unlucky, we end up as casualties. Even worse, we may end up creating other casualties. We may survive these wars, but we do not always do so free of the horrendous ramifications which may ensue from the seemingly unending years of conflicts. Emotional trauma, arrested psychological development, inability to form intimate relationships with others, poor self-esteem, various kinds of stress syndrome, underachievement, overachievement, ambivalence, confusion, inability to commit oneself, debilitating anxiety, and a free-floating malaise 
are but a few of the dysfunctional possibilities which we may carry with us as mementos of the campaigns marking different stages of our formative years. There is a very fundamental sense in which much of what goes on in politics, economics, marriage, and other social institutions is dominated by contentious forays in the battlefield strewn with bunkers of resistance involving locus of control, perceived or actual. Such battlefields are disasters waiting to happen because they bring together a highly volatile mixture of unresolved or problematically resolved locus of control issues from our collective developmental processes. Issues of right or wrong, just or unjust, democratic or undemocratic, equitable or inequitable, legal or illegal, and reasonable or unreasonable often form only the playing field in which locus of control issues become the game within the game. We talk in terms of values, rights, freedoms, truth, and the good as being the reasons for struggling in, say, the political or economic arena. Yet in reality, we use such language in order to shift attention away from the fact that more often than not, the issue which actually is being contended is a matter of locus of control in and of itself. We want to do whatever appeals to us, and we want to do it whenever it appeals to us to do so. Moreover, what appeals to us may not be a function of what is ultimately actually true or good or right or just. Rather, what appeals to us tends to be a function of our own desires, independent of considerations of truth, justice, and so on. Indeed, we'd often try to argue that our desires necessarily reflect what is true or good or just or right. As a result, we convince ourselves that the alleged equivalence between our desires and all that is good and true justifies the locus of control being under our tender fiduciary care. From the Sufi perspective, true autonomy is not primarily a question of how we fare in conflicts involving locus of control issues vis-a-vis -vis other people, whether in the past or in the present. A Sufi is only free when she or he has realized the essential self and acts in accordance with that nature. For the Sufi, an individual could be in prison or in chains or limited by the constraints imposed by others, yet the individual still could have autonomy if the person were to respond to those conditions in terms of the individual's essential nature and true self. On the other hand, a person seemingly might possess the locus of control concerning the lives of other people. Nevertheless, this individual might have no substantive autonomy because the person's essential nature was in bondage to and imprisoned by the person's own desires, the entity which actually is setting the agenda. Such an individual may be, quote-unquote, free to desire. However, this person does not have autonomy over those desires. The Sufi does not seek control over the lives of other people. The Sufi does not enter into conflict with others over matters of locus of control. The true locus of control is with God. The Sufi attempts to discern how that locus of control is being manifested in any given set of circumstances. Once this has been determined, then 
the individual according to the person's capacity and God's support, will merge horizons with the structural character of that locus of control as it unfolds over time. The locus of control is a manifestation of God's will and gives expression to the passion play of existence. The more attuned one is to God's will, the greater will be one's ability to detect and adapt to the shifting currents of the manifestation which are being expressed through the passion play as it reflects the will of God. We adapt ourselves to the will of God not by trying to change or control others, but by changing and having autonomy over our desires and intentions and attitudes. In fact, the great tragedy of so much of the developmental process is that very few people involved in the struggle over issues of locus of control have any understanding of or insight into what the real issues of locus of control are. More specifically, the issue is not about which of the people engaged in a conflict is able to win the battle of dominance in any given set of circumstances. The issue is how do we collectively realize our essential autonomy so we can find harmonious and creative ways to align ourselves with the will of God as it manifests itself through the currents and eddies of the passion play of existence in which we are participant observers. There is something deeply, intrinsically attractive about those people who are able, by the grace of God, to accomplish this kind of transformation. In fact, it is deliciously ironic that such people who do not seek or wish to have control over others end up influencing the desires of so many people who are inspired by their example and want to follow in their footsteps and seek the same sort of transformative essential autonomy exemplified in the lives of individuals such as the Sufi masters. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Music